Disclaimer. In this story, we will be discussing the murder of an eight-year-old girl. This chapter may be triggering for some listeners. This will be the only warning. Please do not listen if you are sensitive to this topic. Hello, everyone. We're both feeling a little under the weather today, so if our voices are a little bit low and we seem a little bit tired, that's why, but we are here. So the story I'm going to be telling you today happened in Woodstock, Ontario in Canada. Woodstock is about an hour and a half away from Toronto, which is probably the most famous Canadian city for whatever reason. Biggest, Um, most populated. Yeah. Justin Bieber. True enough. Well, Blue Jays, I guess Toronto Blue Jays, that's yeah maybe Major league baseball is kind of a big thing in the states not so much here but we do yeah. have an mlb team so yeah makes sense woodstock's population i believe at this time was about thirty-eight thousand people to me that doesn't really mean a small town but i guess when you look at a city like toronto thirty-eight thousand people is relatively small victoria elizabeth marie stafford or Tori, as everybody called her, even the media, was born on July 15th, 2000, to her parents, Tara and Rodney. The couple also had a son born two years earlier, but they ended up separating shortly after Tori was born. Both parents had drug addictions, but with the help of close family, both kids remained in their mother's custody, with Rodney having visitation rights throughout the years. Tori was known to be a happy, friendly little girl who liked getting dressed up in little dresses, earrings, and pretty headbands before heading out to play in the mud or to find worms. Ew. (laughs) So she was a little tomboy, but she also really liked to get dressed up and be a little girly girl. Tara and her kids moved into a new house at the beginning of April 2009, and this house was only a couple of blocks away from the school that both children attended. The first day back to school after Easter break, um, April 8th, Tori was excited to go back to see her friends. Her mom would say that that morning was a little out of the ordinary because Tori was happy and didn't fuss at all. She got ready for school. She borrowed a little headband and some butterfly earrings from her mom and even put on a little bit of lip gloss before leaving on time with her older brother. Now, normally, Tori would walk home from school with her brother as well, but on this day, her brother walked two other kids home first. From what I understand, these kids lived basically right next to the school, so he was only going to be gone for a couple of minutes, and then he would go back to the school, get Tori, and they would walk home together. Um, This is exactly what her brother did, but when he got back, Tori was nowhere to be seen. After a few minutes of looking around the school grounds for Tori, her brother went home and told his mom that Tori didn't meet him after school. Not too much is confirmed about Tara's reaction immediately, but we do know that she called her mom, who's Tori's grandma, who came to the neighborhood and started looking for her. It was actually grandma who called 911 shortly after six o'clock. So some, if not most reports say that Tara was admittedly addicted to Oxycontin at this time and was drugged out on the couch, though Tara says that's not true. 
She says she wasn't panicked at first because she thought maybe Tori was with a friend or maybe got lost, which is why she called her mom to help look. And Tara also called some of her Tori's little friends to see if she had gone to their house, but she didn't. So you said that Tara was admittedly addicted, but then you said that Tara said that's not true. So what what do you mean? I just mean that um, she admitted to having an addiction to oxy. She was addicted to oxys at that point. But as far as being drugged oh, out on, on the, the couch, couch at the time, at she the said, time, that's, she not said that's not true. So no one knew it at the time, but after school let out, Tori remembered that her mom's butterfly earrings were still on her desk, so she ran back inside to get them. When she came back out, most of the other students and school buses had left, and there was no one else around. No one but Terry Lynn McClintock. Is that a dude? No. That's a girl? That is a girl. A woman? A woman. Well, she's 18. Okay. After Grandma called 911, the police actually took this one seriously right off the hop and went to the media to get the word out. Now, they didn't issue an Amber Alert, though. Get this. The circumstances did not meet the criteria required to issue an Amber Alert. So what criteria, you may ask? So an Amber Alert would be issued when police confirm a child under 18 years old had been abducted, check, and could be in serious danger, double check. There must also be enough descriptive information about the child, abductor, or the suspect vehicle in order to it to be issued. Um, I think that if the first two are met, the quickest way to ascertain the last one would be to issue the Amber Alert. But who am I to judge? Well, I get it. They have the criteria for a reason. You don't want to be sending out an Amber Alert every like mm-hmm. every every day we would receive one if that was all they needed for the criteria. Yeah. Whereas like they really didn't technically know if she had been abducted. Mm-hmm. So even the first one's not really checked off. And then they also don't know anything about the abductor because they don't know if she was abducted. That's so true. I get why it's not. And I understand. And it's not like... It's just hindsight, you know? Mm-hmm. And... To be clear, the local police wanted the Amber Alert, Mm -hmm. but they have to ask the Ontario Provincial Police, Mm -hmm. the OPP, um, to issue the Amber Alert. And they're the ones that kind of make sure that the criteria has been met. And the OPP said no. So the local police went to local media, though, and they still got the word out the best they could. Which is definitely what they'd have to do in that scenario. Yeah, and they did. The following day, police released a video surveillance showing Tori being happily led away from the school by what appeared to be a woman with dark hair, wearing dark pants, and a white jacket. Tori was skipping along and didn't seem to be going against her will. This disturbed Tori's family and the police because that could mean that Tori knew and trusted whoever it was that took her. At that point, that is when the Amber Alert should have been should approved. Should have gone out, yeah. Like, if they had video surveillance, they, like, unless the police didn't send that to the OPP, but, like, if OPP was saying, okay, you haven't provided us evidence of these three things, provide us with that, that's where I think it could get a little confused. Do we believe that, like, the board 
that reviews all that is at fault here? Or do we think maybe the police didn't provide adequate proof Mm. of the need for an Amber Alert? It's really hard to say, but I I would like to add that I've been... I've been working on another case that is a very close by Woodstock in Toronto um, and will be releasing the episode soon. But in that case, and this was nine solid years before Tory's murder, the first Amber Alert ever in Canada, and they had less to go on in that one. And they issued an Amber Alert immediately. So that's a that's a really like horrific case too. But I'm just saying there was there was a precedent for the Amber Alert system in Canada, and in that first case that I talked about that happened in 2000, a lot less criteria was met, and they still issued the Amber Alert. So I don't I don't think there's any excuse for them not to have. We come to find out though that the chances of the Amber Alert helping anything in this case slim to none but hindsight right it shouldn't matter looking back we just need to figure out where we went wrong and do it better next time agreed if our listeners hear any huffing it's my dog (laughs) so there's a high school just down a little bit from tory school and that had surveillance footage of tory I'm walking with this woman and that was timestamped at 3.32 p.m. So after releasing this video, police received a number of tips in relation to the woman seen with Tori on the video. And as luck would have it, police had arrested that same woman on an unrelated warrant on the 12th of April, 2009. So four days later, she was 18-year-old Terry Lynn McClintock. She denied having anything to do with Tori's disappearance Tara had even told police in the beginning that it looked like Terry Lynn on the video. Um, Tara had previously met Terry while buying drugs from Terry's mom. We'll get into Terry's, Terry Lynn's home life in a little bit. But people were actually telling police that looks like Terry Lynn McClintock. There's way too many T names. Terry, Tara, Tori, there is. Tara's the mom. Tara's the mom. Tori's the child. Yes. Terry's the weirdo. Right. And I will I will call Terry Terry Lynn just to kind of keep it keep it organized a little bit better. But the police had also considered Tara, the mom, a suspect. She also had long dark hair, but the height didn't match. The police did not clear Tara of any suspicion or involvement until over one month later, when Terry Lynn told the police that she did know what happened to Tori, Terry Lynn told police that she was there outside of the school that day with her boyfriend, Michael Rafferty. Terry Lynn also told police that Tori was dead. She said that Michael had raped Tori and then killed her. And so then Michael was arrested. So let's get into who Terry Lynn McClintock is. She was born in 1990 in Woodstock. Um, Her mother was a stripper, didn't want her, and gave her away to another stripper named Carol McClintock. Carol was raised by an abusive father, totally confused by her father from the time she was three years old when he started physically, emotionally, and sexually abusing her. Carol McClintock tried and failed to be a fit parent twice prior to receiving Terry Lynn. 
Carol was deemed unfit and both of her own biological children were removed from her care. Even though Carol wasn't fit to raise her own children, she was able to adopt Terry Lynn. Terry Lynn's life with Carol was wrought with physical, mental, and sexual abuse, but no one stepped in to take the child away. Her family says they warned the Children's Aid Society that Terry Lynn was in danger when Carol was trying to get custody of her, but in the end, Carol did end up adopting Terry Lynn. Carol was an alcoholic and a drug addict and got Terry Lynn involved in that lifestyle at a very young age. Growing up, um, she would shoot Oxy and Perks with her mother, and Terry Lynn claims that she was raped by men that her mother would bring home. Terry Lynn started getting in trouble with the law by the time she was 13, and some of her offenses were very violent. She even admits to microwaving her dog until it screamed one time. What the fuck? That's crazy. It's a disgusting human being. And I mean, I get it. I have sympathy for that child, but that child made very adult decisions. And yeah, no sympathy. So like I said, Michael Rafferty is Terry Lynn's boyfriend at this time. What an asshole this guy is. I think he was like 28 at the time of Tori's murder, but I, I didn't care to go look up his date of birth or anything. Like he was around 28 years old. As a child, Michael spent some years with an aunt and uncle in Drayton, which is a village outside of Guelph, Ontario, which is close to Woodstock. It's less than an hour away from Woodstock. Uh, he also lived in Toronto and partied, according to friends, who often saw him at bars with all kinds of women. A friend remembers that he was unemployed, but managed to always dress in like really nice clothes, and he always seemed to have money. Sometime between 2002 and 2003, he did move to Guelph, but he also lived in Kitchener and Hamilton, um, and that was according to his My MySpace profile at one time. So around that time, he met Jennifer Wilstra, who was in school to be a veterinarian. The two dated and lived together until September 2005. Their relationship, by all accounts, was like any other young couples. But all this while, Michael was cheating on her. His friends actually said that he was a serial cheater. He never tried to hide it from anybody but his girlfriend. Four months after Jennifer and Rafferty broke up, he used the file-sharing service LimeWire and started a new hobby to download child porn. The next couple of years for Michael were pilled-fueled, manipulative relationships with women who were older, younger, who had children, who didn't have children, just using whoever he could to get what he needed on an unbelievable scale. So many women fell for his shit, and he kept finding new con victims. Even a herpes scare didn't stop him. In March 2006, court documents show that Michael ran online searches like pain medication for genital herpes, severe genital herpes, and images of people with genital herpes. I'm only including that uh, because of how embarrassing for him, but also to show he had this herpes, but still actively dating and sexually active with numerous women. Herpes ain't that big of a deal, I don't think. Is it? No, but I mean, he was spreading it like wildfire, is my point. Isn't that what some people like? Like some people get like cold sores? Isn't that herpes of the mouth? Yes, but this is genital herpes. Oh, sexually different. transmitted. <laughs> yeah. 
and it never goes away. Once you have it, you have it. You just have to be careful, which he wasn't. He spread it. He was very active on the online dating sites like Plenty of Fish. He attended speed dating events. He even registered on a Christian dating website. There was one woman after another in his life. He's even accused of pimping out some of his girlfriends and living off of the money that they earned. Life of crime. Jackass. So in March of 2008, Michael moved to Woodstock to live with his mother, and this is where he would meet Terry Lynn McClintock at a pizza shop. She was just another side hustle for him. She was a really good hookup for Oxy and seemed to be easy to manipulate, which she was. He was downloading porn, snuff videos, and there were women never identified who told investigators that Michael's interest in their children was disturbing. So he was looking at child porn. Child porn, yeah. Yeah, he was downloading child porn. On March 13th, 2009, he googled children for sale and sale of babies. On March 30th, he had a weird online conversation with a woman only identified as Simone where he asked if Simone's daughter, who was still in a crib, would snuggle up with us tonight. Gross. Sleep. So we know that he was a sexual deviant, searched for online child pornography. He enjoyed sexual choking. He liked torture sex. We know that he was addicted to prescription pills like OxyContin. And he was a womanizer. He even pimped out girlfriends, lived off the earnings. We know that he is a child rapist, murderer, and in my opinion, a remorseless psychopath and narcissist who doesn't deserve the time of day. So I think we talked enough about his history. Let's get into what these two did. On April 7th, Mike asked Terry Lynn if she would ever kidnap someone. Being the bad bitch that she was, she told Mike, yeah, I would totally kidnap someone. So Mike began taunting her, manipulating and gaslighting saying things like, you're all talk, you wouldn't do that, you'll have to prove that. This went on all day long. And then on the morning of April 8th, the conversation got more serious. Michael was asking, are we going to do that today? To which Terry Lynn answered, sure, but who? Mike said that he wanted to take a young girl, young enough to manipulate. As if Terry didn't know, but she asked, well, what for? And Mike said, well, of course, to fuck her. Unbelievable. So gross. And who ended up admitting that? Did Mike or did... Uh, Terry Lynn. Terry Lynn ended up saying that's what he said to her? Yeah. And, and I mean, I do specify that, that this is basically Terry's confession. And she... Did she strike a deal? She did not get a deal. We'll Ooh. get into... Well, I, I explain it a little bit coming up. Okay. So Terry Lynn goes along with it, knowing what was going to happen to whoever they abducted. So here's the timeline breakdown as stated in Terry Lynn's confession and as per court documents. Because in Canada, we don't get footage from inside the courtroom. We have a sketch artist inside the courtroom, so we'll get like hand-drawn sketches of court proceedings and a transcript sometimes. A very heavily redacted transcript. We don't have the access that they do in the U.S. So Terry Lynn said that they parked in the parking lot of a retirement home less than a block away, only 300 yards actually from Tory School. She claimed that her plan was to pretend to try to take a girl, but then tell Michael that she couldn't. But when she walked towards the school, she knew Michael was watching her. So she decided to approach a child who was on her own 
and walk and talk with her. Terry said that she spoke to Tori about a dog and asked her if she would like to see her dog. She told Terry it was a Shih Tzu dog and Tori had a Shih Tzu dog of her own, so she was excited and agreed to go and see it. Now, speculation is that Terry knew that Tori had a Shih Tzu because of conversations with Tori's mother during previous drug transactions. Terry Lynn walked with Tori to Michael's car, and when they reached the car, Tori decided she wasn't interested anymore, but Terry Lynn pushed her into the car. Michael was shouting at her to hurry up, hurry up, and Tori was lying on the back seat floor of the car, and Terry Lynn covered her up with Michael's coat. Michael then drove to a Tim Hortons to get a tea. They drove over to Home Depot, where he instructed Terry Lynn to go in and buy black garbage bags and a claw hammer. What the fuck? Which video surveillance shows Terry Lynn just nonchalantly going through and purchasing these things through the self-checkout. And then they went off to Guelph to buy pills some perks and oxys. From there, Michael drove to a remote farmer's field about 100 miles from where they had abducted Tori. And once there, Terry Lynn said that she went for a walk, knowing what Michael was going to do. Terry Lynn said that she could hear Tori crying and calling out T, which is what Terry Lynn had told Tori to call her. Michael eventually called out for Terry Lynn to come back to the car and when she got there, Michael instructed her to take Tori to some nearby bushes so she could go pee. Terry Lynn said that she could see blood running down the child's leg as they walked. Terry Lynn then took Tori back to the car. All the while, Tori was holding onto Terry Lynn's hand for dear life, saying, please don't leave me alone with him again, T. How old, sorry, was Tori? Yeah. Tori's eight. Wow. Oh, Terry Lynn told her that she was strong and that she would be okay. She left Tori with Michael a second time. Terry Lynn walked away but looked back to see Michael in the back seat, back door open, his legs outside of the door, and Tori on Michael's lap facing outside. He was raping her again. Terry Lynn said that she heard Tori's cries turn softer, like more whimpering, so she went back, just in time to see Michael tossing Tori onto the ground outside the car. So Terry Lynn's first story is that she then witnessed Michael put a black garbage bag over Tori's head and strike the child with a claw hammer on her head a number of times. He then told Terry Lynn to hold garbage bags open to help wrap Tori's body before covering the bags with a pile of rocks. At that point, the pair left and went back to Woodstock and carried on as normal. So this was Terry Lynn's story during the police interrogation. She told the investigators everything they needed to hear, and they went and they arrested Michael. But he said nothing in his interrogation other than some word games that, and that Terry Lynn is a liar and basically denied having anything to do with Tori's murder without outright denying he had anything to do with Tori's kidnap and murder. Tori's body was found on May 19th, 2009, just weeks after she went missing. Her remains were so badly decomposed that no evidence of sexual assault could be found on her body, but there was DNA found in his car despite the great lengths Michael had gone to to remove seat covers and clean the car, and he even uh, removed some of the foam from the back seat area. Tori's autopsy showed that she had at least four major blows to her skull, 16 broken ribs, lacerations to her liver, 
to name just a few of the identifiable injuries to her little body. Like this little girl was tortured. Do we know like what would cause lacerations to a liver? Um, kicking, beating. Oh. Mm-hmm. Terry Lynn would go on to plead guilty and would testify against Michael at his trial. After he was found guilty of all charges and sentenced to life without parole for 25 years, Terry Lynn would change her story. She told police that everything was true except who actually murdered Tori. Terry Lynn said that she is the one who beat and murdered the little girl. Which makes me also doubt that like she walked away every time that he Raped sexually her. abused her. Well, whether she did or not, she said that because of her own childhood trauma, it just made her snap. And she beat Tori to stop her own anguish. And I don't get that because when if you're a no, trauma survivor, to... wouldn't she be attacking Michael? The other one, yeah. She like she's obviously just trying to excuse it and find reasons mm-hmm. to allow herself to live with herself. <laughs> yeah. The new confession didn't change anything, though. Both Terry Lynn and Michael had already been given Canada's toughest sentences for the crimes. So at this point, we like to think that, like, Paul and Carla, once the truth comes out, these people should shrink away into the abyss of the prison system. I don't really want to talk about Carla's release because that's bullshit, too. But years after this case was closed, Terry Lynn made national headlines again. In 2018, quite quietly and under the radar, Terry Lynn was transferred from Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener, Ontario, to Okama Ochi Healing Lodge for Aboriginal Women on Nikanit First Nation in Southern Saskatchewan. That's the best I can Honestly, do. Honestly, not bad. It could be fucking fully wrong and we just don't know. 100%. Wow, that's so crazy. So a healing lodge is a Canadian correctional institution designed to meet the needs of Aboriginal women. So First Nations, Métis, and Inuit inmates. You also said that it was designed for Aboriginal women instead of inmates. So I don't know if you want to repeat, but it's up to you. Well, it is women and then First Nations, Métis, and Inuit uh, inmates. Healing lodges were created to address the concern that traditional prisons don't work for Aboriginal offenders. So she was First Nations? No. Okay, we're getting we're we're, we're get getting there. there. <laughs> Aboriginals are overrepresented in the prison system and are also more likely to be victims of crime. In healing lodges, the focus is on healing and reconnecting with Indigenous culture while inmates serve their sentences. Connecting to nature, participating in cultural ceremonies, and learning spiritual teachings are how healing lodges process the rehabilitation and healing of inmates. They also have access to spiritual guidance from elders and are encouraged to maintain connections with their families and communities. Healing lodges were proposed as an alternative for Aboriginal female offenders, but there are now healing lodges for Aboriginal males as well. Uh, Women's healing lodges are minimum to medium security facilities, and men's healing lodges are minimum security facilities. What the frick? Now, what's that you ask? Terry Lynn is Aboriginal? Nope, she's not. But she identifies as one. And there is no requirement to prove otherwise in this grand old system of ours. 
Like, unbelievable. So, like... You could go and get charged with murdering an eight-year-old little girl and then say, I'm Aboriginal and be sent to one of these peace-loving healing lodges to I serve your sentence. I feel like there has to be more to that because everybody would do that if that was the case. It's not a well-known thing, right? So somebody in prison obviously told Terry Lynn about it and she tried her best to manipulate the system. Yeah, exactly. Like that would spread like wildfire if one it person... Did. Oh. It did. So Tori's father, Rodney, got wind of this and contacted the media. And of course, once the public knew, holy hell of a hoopla, did we ever make some noise. Even in our House of Commons, the opposition would question the Prime Minister Trudeau why he hasn't acted on the issue, because only the Prime Minister could have Terry Lynn ordered to go back to regular prison. During the debate, the opposition listed Tory's injuries as reasons as to why Terry belonged in a federal maximum security prison, to which Trudeau just said, please stop describing such things to the record. Like, wow, really, dude? This is the horrific crime we are talking about, and no one wants to hear the details, but it seems necessary for you to listen. In any case, Trudeau felt the wrath, and he did end up reversing the transfer, um, this situation also prompted prison officials to again reclassify McClintic, this time in reverse, from being a minimum security inmate to a medium security inmate on November 8th, 2018. She was then removed from the Healing Lodge in Saskatchewan and transferred to the Edmonton Institution for Women, and soon after she returned to her former prison in Grand Valley Institution for Women in Kitchener. Court documents show that an application was made on April 30th, 2019 to an Alberta court claiming that Terry Lynn had lost her residual liberty, which was unreasonable and procedurally unfair. She I, was also seeking compensation, compensation, so she wanted money. So Public Safety Minister Ralph Goodale ordered the Commissioner of Correctional Services Canada to review Terry Lynn's transfer as well as the policy that allowed it to happen. So things have now changed, and Terry Lynn is still in the institution in Kitchener. Her parole date is in 2031, which to me doesn't seem far enough away. Her behavior in prison isn't showing any improvement either. Uh, she had attacked and brutally beat a fellow inmate for, quote, talking behind her back hope she is labeled a dangerous offender otherwise this psycho could be out in less than 10 years from now but at least she's not doing her time in that healing lodge i guess yeah so things with michael rafferty seem to be pretty quiet until relatively recently when he was transferred to a medium security institution because apparently they have better programs for sex offenders in medium security and to me does this mean that Michael could be paroled one day? Why does it matter if we rehabilitate him if he's going to be behind bars until he's no longer a danger to society? Should he not have to serve the entire sentence before being transferred to a facility to get treatment or counseling or whatever? Along the same lines is Paul Bernardo was also recently transferred to medium security as well. What does this mean? Usually it's a path uh, process that inmates go through as kind of reintegration programs 
getting them ready to be in society again through a series of level transfers and counseling leading up to parole. Like, hopefully not, but you never know. And I think due to our policies in Canada, it goes hand in hand. So because we're so lax on our sentences, they kind of have to start the process early on of rehabilitation because if there is a chance that these people can like even act like they've got everything together and they found god or whatever and they're ready to be be released like i feel like because of that they have to start working on them earlier on Mm -hmm. now that's not saying that I agree with it, but I think that because it goes hand in hand, the first thing that would need to change is sentences for these people. At the like, maximum, yeah, because they could. So no when you parole. get, yeah, you get you get sentenced to twenty five years. That's the maximum sentence. That's a life sentence in Canada. Twenty five life with no parole until twenty five years is the best way to explain it i guess so at the 25 year mark like paul bernardo he surpassed 25 years he's also labeled as a dangerous offender so that means that after 25 years he was able to apply for parole but there's no guarantee that he's going to be granted parole because he's a dangerous offender i don't think michael rafferty or terry lynn have been designated dangerous offenders i i don't know for sure but so if Terry Lynn comes up for parole in 2031, let's just say she's done all the work and she's gone through rehabilitation. And does that still, does that make it okay to let her out? Like she's murdered an eight-year-old little girl. And before that, she led her life of crime. She microwaved her dog. She beat fellow inmates. Like this person should not be allowed into our society. Like that. Charles Manson follower, she served 53 years before finally being granted parole. And that was after she had done 50 something years of work and rehabilitation. And she was an elderly lady when they let her out. So, and Terry yeah. Lynn is only, she was only 18 when this happened. So, yeah. 2031, I don't know how old she's going to be, but still a danger to society for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, doesn't uh, our sentencing's like the the system is broken? It really is. It's so broken. And I mean, whatever. This is just one of those sad stories. So sad. We always say that you know Canada, we don't deal with the large amount of violent murders that they do in the United States. That's it's an American problem and blah, blah, blah. But it's really not when you start looking into the crimes that occur here, crimes against children that occur here, and the level of brutality coupled with the sentences. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, our society is in just as much peril as the American justice system is. It's- I think the justice system for sure, but, um, you know, when, when a big crime happens here it shakes the entire country whereas 
it ain't like that in America. No, because it, it does happen more often for sure. Way for more sure. often. It like, does. Something happens in Calgary, like the O'Brien, like in yeah. O'Brien, like, and that rocked all of us. Stuff like that happens all the freaking time yeah. in America. It does. So it, it's different. I think that there's just more, more space in America for like, it seems like there's a lot of um, crime neighborhoods, I guess. It and is. that produces. And like, our population too Ill. is a lot smaller. Like, yeah, we have four people per square kilometer in Canada, whereas in the United States, it's something like quadruple that. Yeah. So we've got the largest landmass with the <clears throat> fewest amount of people. Yeah. In the world. Yeah. So I mean, that's got to play a part. That in it for too. sure plays a part in it. Yeah. It's gotta. Like, we don't have, like, a New York City. We look no. at those apartments and stuff, and we're like, what the fuck? Yeah, who would... <laughs> like To me, I look at some of those, and I'm just like, who would, who would want... Who would pay $3,500 to live month? there? Yeah, or who would buy a, an apartment on the 126th floor in Manhattan this day and age for $75 million? I seen yeah. it on TikTok this morning. Like, are you mm-hmm. out of your fucking I mind? I always watch those videos. I'm like, what the fuck? Like, beautiful places and all, but no thank you. Yeah, and, like, for, like, nothing. It's, like, mm-hmm. $3,000 and stuff a month. And you don't even get, like, a bedroom. It's, like, a space heater <laughs> yeah. in a room that, yeah. like, is covered in bricks. Not that, like, I don't want to go to America. Like, I want to. Oh, it's a beautiful country. It's just talking strictly crime and justice crime justice and broken systems yeah that right there is a broken fucking system how are how are you not going to make people angry yeah about not being able to freaking live like yeah Yeah. so that's the story of tori stafford um rest in peace her dad and her brother are major advocates i don't think there's going to be a hearing a news story anything about these two monsters that he's not going to be on top of and Mm -hmm. even the paul bernardo transfer he was very boisterous about that too like he's not gonna go away quietly which is good her mom on the other hand is dealing in her own way she's not able to be as public as rodney is which is fine everybody grieves in their own way but both of them have really turned their lives around um tori's brother you know, he misses his sister. He did a really heartfelt speech at her funeral or tried. He got a few lines in before his mom had to finish reading it. Mm-hmm. It's very gut-wrenching to listen to. But um, all in all, I hope they're all doing okay. And uh, thoughts and prayers to everybody involved. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and share with your friends. If you don't mind giving us a five-star rating, it will help our show grow. You can also find us on Facebook, TikTok, and X at True Crime Story Podcast, where the discussion can continue. If you wish to contact us, you may do so via email at truecrimestorypod at gmail.com. Remember to send in your podcast episodes, case suggestions, or requests. Hop over to our Patreon for bonus content, or you can go to buymeacoffee.com to support the show. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Bree, And I'm sure. And we'll see you on the next chapter. Bye. Bye.